Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Samantha Lang. Sam is an Agile software development coach and speaker who works along with her colleague Karen at their company Growing Agile, based in Cape Town. Along with Karen, Sam is the co-author of a number of LeanPub books, including, I think it's still, six books in the Coach's Guide series. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Sam Lang, and learn more about Growing Agile by following the Twitter account at Growing Agile, and you can also get in touch by emailing them at um, info at growingagile.co.za with questions. In this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about Sam's career and professional interests, um, her books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience self-publishing. So thank you, Sam, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and in our interview with your colleague, Karen, um, she talked a little bit about her experience going to college and then heading off to Seattle in the late 90s. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how you became interested in uh, the world that you're in. My, my story was a little less glamorous. Um, I actually wanted to study medicine and I wasn't accepted into the medical facility at university. So we have an equivalent called a Bachelor of Science where I could study all the same subjects and probably get in in second year. So I did that. And one of the subjects I picked up as an extra was computer science. And at the end of the first year, I realized actually I preferred computers and maths to anything else. So... I got my degree in Bachelor of Science and in Computer Science and Maths, and I went off and became a software developer, which I loved. I absolutely loved software development. I started out in Delphi. I did some Pascal. I did some .NET, C Sharp, some Java, a whole bunch, and I kind of wormed my way around into a team lead position, and it was at this stage that I realized no matter what we did or how well we did it, deadlines were always forced on us and I hated it. And I had to kind of make a choice in my career whether I wanted to become an architect and further my way in the development side or if I wanted to become a manager. So I thought, no, I, I might be able to help the team more with deadlines if I became a manager. Turns out managers also have no say about deadlines. Um, but it was around there somewhere that I discovered the Agile and the Scrum and everything just opened up to me. I finally, there was light at the end of the passage and I thought, oh yes, I can finally do something about this. So I resigned and didn't have a job and went in search of becoming a Scrum Master at some company. And that's when Karen hired me as a Scrum Master, and that's how we met. And yeah, three years later, we started our own business. And what was that transition like from being a, you know, a programmer to being a manager? Uh, it, was, it was very difficult initially because I couldn't just solve the problem by myself. I had to help other people solve their own problems. Whereas as a team lead, if something was wrong, I could just jump in and fix it. That wasn't necessarily the case as a manager. It was also frustrating because in my mind, I had expected to have a lot more say and a lot more 
I don't know, power maybe. And I realized that I'm, I'm just another cog in the wheel and there's always someone else above me that's actually pulling all the strings. It's interesting. Um, I've interviewed quite a few people who are involved in agile software development for this podcast and frustration, um, you know, is part of the, the origin story of agile. Um, uh, and, uh, it's a common element, um, you know, that people are part of organizations that are trying to achieve, you know, often pretty concrete goals. And yet the management structure and the management conventions seem to get in the way of achieving those goals. Do you think things have changed in the last, let's say, 15 years or so? In in some organizations, I see a lot of change, and, and I'm sometimes blown away by how forward-thinking they are. And in other organizations, I, it might as well be the 1950s that I'm walking into. So some organizations, I see... HR getting involved and talking to people and there's no such thing as performance appraisals. Um, there's even some organizations that have all their salaries are completely open and transparent to everyone. And that's just an amazing level of transparency. And why is, why is that important? Why is it important to um, be transparent about salary levels? I think... I think salaries lead to a lot of underlying issues. So there's a lot of – so traditionally in organizations, I don't know if this is the same all over the world or specific to South Africa, but salaries are kept a secret. So everyone has to kind of not speak about their salary, or at least that's what's um, expected from from you. But what management doesn't know is everyone actually talks about their salary or most people do. And then they compare themselves to other people and they get really upset when they find out they're not being paid as much as someone else who they think is doing less work or anything like that. And it tends to lead to a lot of upset, unhappy people. Um, this actually happened to me at one organization where I was a team lead. I used to get into work first in the morning. I was there at about half past six in the morning. And the first thing I do is print out all the bugs for our team. And I went to the printer and someone had left a sheet with all our team members' names and their salaries. Wow. Yes, it was very well because me and the other team lead for the other team were the two least paid on the whole team. Huh. So he, I just put that sheet on my boss's desk with a post-it note on it saying, we need to talk, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and did you talk? Um, one, that's really interesting. <laughs> one, one, uh, one question um, I like to ask people. Uh, who've gotten into software development is um, if you were starting over now or if we were talking to your younger self who was just sort of entering into a, a new career now, would you recommend studying computer science in university? or would No. Okay. No, I wouldn't even recommend going to university. I think it is a huge waste of money. I mean... I, I did get value out of university. I don't think it was worth the price tag that was put on it. Um, particularly software development, 
we were taught such theoretical stuff that when I got to the real world, I had to learn so much of specific languages that it, the only thing university taught me was that I can switch languages quite easily. But that said, if I was given three years to learn to switch languages outside of university, I would probably also be able to do that. What's the, um, actually, I'm curious, what's the situation with the university in South Africa is tuition? I mean, obviously you said it costs money, so it's not, it's not paid for by the state. Um, is it, is it a similar system to what one might find in the United States where there are, um, uh, you know, private universities that are very expensive and then public ones that might have, might be slightly less expensive or have a lot of scholarships? So we have, um, I don't know if they're public or private, actually, but we have a bunch of universities and they are expensive. I don't think they're private. I think they're just, there are universities in South Africa. They cost a lot of money. Most people can't afford to go to university. Most people who do go to university are paying it off, which I think is very similar to the States. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's not so much a problem. I'm I'm speaking from uh, the province of British Columbia in Canada. Um, oh. we, we we do have. Um, I mean, obviously the student loan issue is and student debt issue is a problem in most places. Um, we don't have quite the same uh, problem with it in Canada. Um, you know, I don't think there are any universities in Canada where it costs sixty thousand dollars a year um, in tuition, like it does in some universities in the United States. Um, but one, one interesting thing, and I'm curious about your opinion about this is that I've heard from people is that if you want to work for a big company, like a Google or an Apple or something like that, then a software, like a, a computer science university degree is kind of a necessary requirement. Is that true in your experience working with big companies like today? Uh, sadly, yes. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's a and specifically it has to be a computer science degree, uh, an IT related degree. So, uh, for example, my wife uh, used to be an HR manager. She's got a social degree, um, social sciences degree, and she switched careers in her mid thirties, and she's now a software developer. But it's actually, everyone asks her, you know, do you have a degree in IT? And she's like, well, no, but I do have a degree. <laughs> and it's it's kind of a barrier for her as well. She has to really prove herself, even though she's been employed as a software developer for five years. That's really interesting. Um, uh, and when you're, so when you're brought into an organization um, as a, as a coach, um, do you uh, go into the backgrounds of the people that you're going to be working in, work, working with, like their educational backgrounds? Not necessarily. We we don't really work with organizations long term. We're usually only there for a month or two months, and we'll then maybe go back after a year. So we don't really talk about their education unless it's something that's holding them back. Then we'll talk about what they could do. And um, what what um drives an organization to invite you and Karen in to, to help them? Uh, what are the sort of typical problems that lead them to go looking for 
solutions? I think the most common, so there's two types of people that contact us. The one are companies that want to have the agile. They want to have this magic thing called agile and they want to do scrum training. Um, and then there's the others that have been doing the scrum thing for a while and they don't feel they're actually getting the benefit that it's supposed to bring to them. And those are the ones we truly love. Those are those are our favorite playing grounds because they've got some of the they've tried some things and they either worked or didn't work. But for us, that's exciting because we get to explore new areas with them and help them um, really dig deep into what they've been doing and how they've been doing it and why they've been doing it. And what are some of the um, obstacles that teams that sort of adopt an agile or, or scrum approach then confront later on after they've tried and sort of, you know, not necessarily succeeded to the degree they wanted to? What are, what are the sort of typical problems that you then have to help people overcome? So on the surface, the problems that they mention are things like um, – we commit to a certain amount of points every sprint, but we never deliver those points. Um, a lot of our work is interrupted the whole time. Um, so when we start working on things in the sprint, they explode and snowball, and they're much larger than we thought it was. Um, that's Those are the main, I'd say that's probably 80% of the problems. And... Those for us are awesome because there's such nice ways to deal with that. And usually it touches on quite an itchy, scratchy topic, which is do you all work on your own individual stories? And that is usually the case here. And when we suggest all working together on a story, that's impossible because they can't even – they can't see how they might even do that. So showing teams what is possible and how they could work together and help each other after one month, seeing how much their team has bonded and how they love working together now just is amazing. And um, if you encounter, say, a skeptical programmer, um, what do you have some techniques for overcoming that? You know, I mean, I, for example, I mean, I'm not a programmer myself, but I, I do write. Um, and if someone came in and told me to collaborate with someone on writing, I mean, I, you know, I do do it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I get grumpy. Um, uh, you know, what, what, what are the ways you have of trying to convince people that, you know, working together, uh, in the, in the ways that you, you get people to work together is superior to the, you know, maybe comfort zone that they're already in. So it, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, in what we try and do, and they are skeptics, they are always skeptics, and they're usually senior developers who are very opinionated and have the loudest voices in the room as well, so you can't ignore those skeptics. We usually try and speak to them one-on-one, -on -one, understand their frustrations, because they generally have quite a bit of frustration. Um, recently at an organization, um, the senior devs, 
there's three of them and they actually wanted to leave. They told their manager they're going to leave because they're so tired of not being able to get anything done because they keep helping the junior developers and no one has enough experience on the system. And because the company is trying to scale, they've also almost doubled in size in the last few months. And so the drain on them is even more. And what we said to them was, we just want you to try something for one meeting, and that was a backlog grooming or backlog refinement session. And then for sprint planning part two, we want you to just tweak it and do it slightly different. And then tell us at the end of the sprint if that helped you or not. And the change in their team and how much the juniors were able to do thing, more things by themselves instead of requiring their assistance every couple of hours was uh, awesome. They, they were amazed. They didn't think it would make such a difference. Oh, that's really fantastic. So, it sounds, sounds very interesting. So, you know, if someone's skeptical about something, uh, presenting them with sort of uh, defined parameters, um, you know, we're going to try this once, it's going to be like this, um, can help put them at ease with what they're sort of getting into rather than an open-ended or undefined situation. Um, uh, I've heard, I've heard that from a couple of other people before, I think, and that sounds really good. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, I asked Karen um, this question as well when I interviewed her, um, but in one of your books, um, you talk about both you and Karen have done your share of overtime on death march projects. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about one memorable death march project that you worked on and you know what made it a death march rather than a parade. Um, sure. It, it's a very dark time in my life. <laughs> um, I used to, this was a company where I used to get in at half past six in the morning and I used to leave at about 6 p.m., drive 30-odd kilometers home, feed my dogs, turn around, drive back to the office, stay at the office till one in the morning and then drive back home and sleep. And we did that for... I don't even know how long, probably six or more months. The company was, um, they were, they were lovely. They, they supplied us with dinner every night in the form of pizza. After about a month, everyone just was ordering salads from the pizza place. Cause I think our nutrition levels were so depleted. That's all we wanted. Um, Evening sessions were disastrous because no one can focus for that long. We did get into trouble once with the security guards because we had a paper airplane competition across the entrance hallway to see whose plane could fly the furthest, and we created a lot of litter. Yeah, it kind of, you know, people can only focus for so long and making them stay in the office and pretending that they're being productive is just, I don't know who it's fooling. Certainly didn't fool anyone on our team. The later we stayed, the more bugs we created, the more issues we created, the stupider we became. And I mean, this project, I think the end date was delayed something like eight times the go live date. And eventually it went live 
And I think it was in production for two years before they actually pulled the plug because no one used it. So all this effort, all this energy, all this craziness and for nothing. And um, if you go into a company now, for example, and you see something like that happening, I mean, I'm not sure if you have or if you do anymore, but um, you know, what can you say to managers about that? Like if they're under pressure to show that they're sort of squeezing people for effort, you know, what can you do to try and convince them that, you know, just keeping bums in seats longer doesn't necessarily mean greater productivity? So one of the most effective techniques we have is to play games with them. So we play the aeroplane game. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I don't think so. So it's basically you fold paper airplanes. <laughs> seeing a theme here. Yeah. I've clearly spent too much of my life folding paper airplanes. Um, but you kind of set up a factory scenario where one person folds the paper in half, the next person folds the nose, the next person folds the wings and draws a star on them. And then the next person puts another flap in the wings and flies it. But the person who has to, the fourth stage, fold the wings and draw the star is kind of a bottleneck that you're creating in the system. And you put a whole bunch of papers in and the 10th paper is a colored paper and then you time how long it takes for the, the colored paper to get through the system. And you tell people to work as fast as possible and as soon as they get to that colored paper, you stop the timer. So it takes about eh, four or five minutes three to five minutes for the first round. Then in the second round, and people work like crazy, okay? They they create so many paper airplanes that just, they build up all over the show. In the second round, you tell people they can't start folding the next airplane until the person downstream from them has taken the one they've just folded from them. So they can't build up an inventory, so only one aeroplane is kind of at one person at a time. There's nothing waiting. So if there's a bottleneck in the system, you all wait for that bottleneck to move. So you're actually moving as slow as your bottleneck. And the time for the yellow piece to flow through the system is almost half the time. And then we ask, we asked them what they noticed and which which of those two rounds did they feel more productive. And it's always the first round because they were busy like headless chickens. And we asked, but it took you twice as long in the first round to get to the yellow piece of paper than it did in the second round. So you were actually more productive in the second round when you were calm and waiting, not busy, 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 busy. So, and then we ask them, which of these two scenarios is more relevant to how you work in your workplace? And how could you become calmer and thus more productive? That's uh, really interesting. Um, uh, I can say, you know, personally, uh, my mood is soured when I feel blocked. And I prefer, you know, I'm the kind of person who kind of prefers to... Um, uh, you know, take an alternative route rather than sit in the traffic jam, even if I know it's going to take longer to go the other way. Um, but what you just described is really convincing um, and very straightforward, you know, as a demonstration of why, you know, 
simply doing what maybe makes you feel better in the moment isn't necessarily what's making, you know, what's better for the team. Um, yes, but it does take someone outside of the system to look at everything from an overall perspective to see that. Right. Because when you're in the system folding airplanes, that's all you see is that you have to fold airplanes. You don't see what's happening or that there's a bottleneck downstream and it doesn't actually matter how fast you go. I um, wanted to ask you about uh, something that I, I saw you tweet about. Um, you might not remember, but it was a blog post by Ron Jeffries called Twice the Effort All the Time. Um, uh and I'll quote quote from it. I don't expect you to remember everything you tweet about. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but I just wanted to use it as an example to get your opinions about, um, you know, sort of agile and the agile community where, you know, people who are unfamiliar with it might not know, but there can be kind of big debates um, and sort of heated opinion. Um, and I'll quote, I'll quote him from this post. He says, um, so I guess agile has moved beyond being applied by people who understood it and liked what it gave them, or who liked what they saw and worked hard to learn to get it, into a world where decision makers, who don't even know what it is, decide that those guys down there need some of that agile stuff, and impose it, impose something on their organization. Um, is that is that something that you experience sometimes, where you know people bring you into an org bring you into an organization and they don't really know even what it is that you're bringing, they just sort of know that there's this agile thing out there and that they need a little bit of the, you know, special sauce or something like that. Yes, 100%. Uh, we, we have been brought into organizations and being told our mandate is that we will have 100 teams agile by the end of the year and we need 500 scrum masters and we're like well that's that's nice um there there aren't 500 scrum masters in south africa but that's that's a lovely goal why do you want to be agile no because we've been told that's in our company goals it's our strategy for the year and that's yeah it's it's so sad because right there, our strategy for the year is to be agile. It's like, well, that's not really why agile's here. That's, yeah, it kind of goes against being agile a bit. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, Ron Jeffries also writes about how um, often power holders have little or no idea how to program. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Is there something about managing software development that's maybe different from other types of labor um is it do you need domain specific ex expertise in order to successfully manage any software development um project oh that's such a nice itchy scratchy topic um so i don't believe you need software knowledge to manage a team of software developers i think it actually gets in the way. Um, I think what managers need are people skills. And sadly, most people become, especially in software, most people become software development managers or managers of software teams because they were the senior software developer. And they have very few people skills. They've never been trained in 
talking to people and leading people and managing people and they kind of fumble their way through it. And I think that's really, really sad because if you've ever had an awesome, amazing boss, it was because of his people skills, not because he was an excellent developer. That's a really interesting way to put it. I think you're the first person to put it quite quite that way. I mean, I've, I've interviewed people before who've said, you know, obviously, you know, pointed out the importance of people skills. Um, I was interviewing um, someone just recently um, who talked about how, you know, it's kind of, it's all people skills in a way. Um, uh, but um, uh, I think you're the first person to say that, you know, you actually don't really need um, to know how to program in order to manage a team of developers. Um, what would you suggest to say someone who's um, managing developers for the first time? What can they, how, how, what can they do to sort of get their head in the right space for managing people who are doing that type of knowledge work? I would say the best advice I could give is to for them to get themselves a business coach. So someone who can ask them questions to show them how to ask questions instead of order people around. Um, someone who can help them see that there are other ways to manage. Yeah, that would be my, my advice. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, walking into a situation and trying to figure out how to ask the right questions rather than first, you know, how to give the right commands. Um, you know, how can you know how to do, how to issue the right commands without actually knowing what the problems people have are and whether or not they're even capable of articulating um, what their problems are. Yeah. Well, Karen and I were actually having, we, we actually had this conversation in the car today about, um, managers and we specifically noticed that mostly male managers in technical field seem so concerned about technology and they want to drive the architecture and ensure people are going to the tech conferences and, Female managers are more concerned about um, having one-on-ones with the people and ensuring that the teams are working together well and making sure that everything is um, kind of harmonious and happy. And when I think of a manager, I want someone who's looking after my well-being because I have the technical expertise. I don't need them to have the technical expertise. Um, I don't. I don't think I'd want them to be Ill, illiterate technically, um, but yeah, I suppose there is a balance somewhere. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting um, observation. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you. Um, I've, I've, I think you're the third South African programmer that I've interviewed, and um, two of you are have been, uh, you know, female. Um, uh, and uh, what's the what's the gender divide like in in software development in South Africa, is it as one might expect it would be based on precedence in other places? Or is it is it maybe a little bit different there? Um, for as long as I can remember, I was the only female developer on my teams. My wife has just 
joined a new company. She's the only female developer on a team of eight guys. It's, yeah, majority male, very few females. That's just how it is. Um, I wanted to ask, speaking of, uh, you brought up Karen, um, and uh, I wanted to, uh, one thing I neglected to ask her um, in, in my interview with her, which I uh, regretted not asking, was, um, you know, you've written, you, you work together, obviously, in Growing Agile, um, uh, the company, but you've also written a lot of books together. Um, do you have a particular process for collaboration? I mean, does it just come out naturally? I mean, we already spoke a little bit about, you know, how, you know, some people like to work alone and take, it takes some convincing to work with other people, but obviously you and Karen are very productive together. Um, what, what's your, do you have a process for writing together? We do. I think Karen and I are quite unique in that we only pay work. So we, we haven't done any work separate um, since probably after the first three months of starting our company six years ago. So we are very used to pair working. Uh, when it comes to writing a book, we have a Kanban board that we share that's between us, flat on the table, and we plan, we roughly plan what are all the chapters that we want in the book and how do we want to make up those chapters? Like, are there images? Is there a story? Is there an exercise? What do we want in that chapter? And we break it down. And then we each grab a chapter and we do what we call vomit onto the page. So that's our term for don't filter, just just type whatever comes to mind. And it doesn't matter if it's absolute crap, that's fine, just type. And then when you're done, you put it into the review column on the Kanban board and the other one will review it. But once someone has put all this junk on a page – it's so much easier to make it pretty and to ad lib and finish sentences and all of that. And so that's what we do. Yeah, that sounds like a really good, really good system. I like the, you know, giving one license to just, just write. Um, uh, I've heard that from, from other writers before where, you know, the, you know, and I've, I've experienced this myself where like, you know, the biggest um, impediment to actually writing anything can be this sort of, fear of not writing a perfect thing, you know, with the first keystrokes. Um, and that's, you know, often the worst way to try and get anything, get anything done. Um, just letting yourself go, uh, is, is, um, a really good way to, to, you know, uh, not just get started, but like, you know, write well in the end. Um, uh, is, um, reader feedback important to you? I'm curious to know. I mean, it, for your books, have you sort of solicited reader feedback? Is that important to you? It is important to us. We often encounter people who have bought a book and then immediately we'll ask them, well, what did you think? Um, did you, most of our books have exercises in them. They, um, for coaches to use, um, when they coach other people. So we want to know how they used our books and if it was helpful and, yeah, we get some feedback about spelling mistakes and mostly we get requests for new books. And um, do you have any new books that you're working on at the moment? No, not at the moment. Um, we, we, we've decided to only do smaller books. So most of our books 
recently have been a lot shorter. And the reason for that is we have a what we call a creation week and we have to come up with the idea for the book and write the book and publish the book in that week. So that's how we motivate ourselves and stimulate ourselves. But we haven't had another book creation week yeah, that Yet. sounds like a really, really fun idea um, uh, and probably something to look forward to. I mean, I definitely look forward to your next creation week and the next book that, that, you, um, that you guys write. Um, uh, uh, my last question for you is, um, you know, you've used LeanPub to write quite a few books and publish quite a few books. Um, is there anything missing that you can think of? I mean, even even if there isn't necessarily sort of a you know, a weakness, if there's, if there were some magical, you know, world peace button that we could create for you, um, uh, that would really help you in what you do or, or, you know, satisfy requests that your readers have had. Is there anything like that, that you can, that you can think of? So I will say the whole pay what you want, if you want to pay more thing, I, I love that so much. I often find myself on other platforms going, I wish they had that because I wish I could decide what to pay for something. So I really love that about LeanPub. I think Karen and I have unique issues because we have so many books. It's, for example, if someone asks for a refund, we literally have to go through every single book and about four button clicks inside every book to try and figure out which one was refunded and was it a bundle and was there a reason? And yeah, I think that's the hardest thing for us because we have so many, so many books to try and figure out which ones made money and which ones had refunds is hard for us. Yeah. Th thanks. No, thanks for that. Um, I remember I, I was either with you or with Karen. Um, I believe I was corresponding recently about, um, coupons, uh, for multiple books. Uh, yes. Coupons yeah. is also difficult. Yeah. So with the way LeanPub works, authors can, um, uh, offer coupon links to people, um, where they click on the link and then they go to a page where they get a lower minimum price than they might normally see. Um, but uh, Sam and Karen have so many books that when they want to, you know, sort of do coupons for a number of books, they have to go into each individual book and then set a discount price. Um, and the idea of being able to set a sort of global discount price for all the books or something like that is something that would be really useful. Um, uh, I hadn't quite thought about the issue of drilling down into the issues around, say, refunds and feedback for multiple books as a kind of collective kind of issue. Uh, but that's really interesting and something that um, we'll definitely think about um, because obviously we'd love to see more authors with more books um, and uh, we want to be able to meet those needs. Um, well, I wanted to say uh, thanks very much, Sam, for uh, staying up late um, in Cape Town and, uh, and uh, doing this interview um, uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I really just wanted to thank you for uh, being on the lean pub podcast and for being a lean pub author. Thank you. It was really nice to see the face behind lean pub. It was fun. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>